You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR Saturday breakfast show. And uh, we just had a huge downpour of rain. I don't know where you are, but um, it was a... <clears throat> excuse me, it was a... Uh, Highly exciting weather event. I'm glad I got here early enough not to be washed out. But anyway, hopefully after the show's finished, I'll be able to trot home and there will be no rain at all. All perfectly timed because Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday morning is the program to be listening to. We're going to um, look at the ABC. Uh, I know it seems like a funny thing to be looking at when you're on a community radio station, a strand of... uh, the most important strand of uh, media in Australia, I have to say. But uh, the ABC is an important uh, facet of uh, the Australian media. Uh, unusual because it is not a commercially based uh, outlet. It is uh, funded by the government uh, on the same model that... Uh, well, it's it's a similar concept to uh, the BBC, uh, begun... A long time ago, in the 1930s, uh, it was uh, supposed to uh, bring Australia together, uh, you know, uh, bring um, media outlets to and uh, news to all the parts of uh, Australia, you know, in its far and distant way, not just the urban centres. Lots of things have happened since then. And during the uh, last uh, uh, LMP uh federal government, which appears to have been entirely just Morrison, the Morrison uh, (laughs) musical. (laughs) In fact, I was beginning to think, um, I I don't see Morrison as being a Svengali, a ghost in the machine, you know, smart enough, that sort of thing. It began when it was divulged that uh, Morrison had had himself formally sworn in as... uh, as the shadow minister for five, um, no, sorry, there is the shadow is the uh, opposition. I mean, the uh, uh, co-joined twin minister for five uh, of the department's ministries. I my immediate thought was, I wonder who's running Morrison. <laughs> Who is the uh, person behind this? Uh, 
this uh, scheme of this power bloated scheme of anti-democracy and also what play, what role did the Governor General play in this because he was formally sworn in uh, which of course leads one to believe that you know being a republic might be a good idea because obviously the the, the breaks that are supposed to be on the system supplied by the Governor General is very shoddy a little bit like uh, the interview that we had last uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago on uh, Stick Together, that rather interesting uh, conversation with the woman who was uh, a, a car saleswoman uh, from the very beginning, or, oh, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, 80s or maybe. Anyway, a young woman who, uh, now older, who uh, was a car saleswoman, she said a really fascinating thing. She said that they were selling cars there were a lot of uh, deaths on the roads uh, for uh, the Mako kind of cars because at the time they were selling them, the uh, brakes weren't up to uh, the speed and the um, power of the cars that they, they were selling, which is a fascinating uh, insight into um how uh, it's discovered uh, safety <laughs> safety in um, mechanisms uh, very trial and error you know how many bodies are mounting up uh, for uh, the um, uh, finding the sweet spot when it comes to uh, um, safety uh, mechanisms in machinery but anyway by the by uh so governor general is obviously uh, a flawed system uh because it couldn't defend Australian democracy from the uh woolly-haired mammoth called Morrison but anyway um <laughs> we were really actually talking about the ABC Kevin later on has some quite a lot to say about the um multi-headed uh, hydra called Morrison but uh We'll, we'll move on and leave that to him later in the program. Uh, I went to an event uh, that was held at uh, Emerald, Emerald Hill Library. See, libraries have a lot of important um, roles in the community and one of them is uh, public events. And there was a book talk. It was called. Uh, it was about a book called Who Needs the ABC? And it was, uh, and the subtitle to that who needs the ABC, why taking it for granted is no longer an option, uh, how digital disruption and political dysfunction threaten the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's existence. It's been written by um, Matthew Rickardson and Peter McMullins. Uh, Matthew Rickardson is actually Professor Matthew Rickardson and he did a book talk around this book and uh, he now is the lead at uh, the journalism department at Deakin, formerly at RMIT, and formerly a journalist himself. But anyway, I thought it was worthwhile listening to what he had to say because their research actually brought up some interesting new information and it also uh, gives you uh, trawls across the uh, the nature of our media landscape and what has caused certain of the levers to be pulled throughout the existence of the ABC, uh, leading to this sort of disastrous LMP carry-on over the last almost 10 years that we've been experiencing. The last election really was 
a lucky escape, I'd have to say. So here we go. This is what he had to say. OK, our view is that the kind of Australia that we've been sketching in this little thought experiment would be a much lesser Australia than the one we have now. We believe that the ABC is one of this country's most important cultural institutions, producing an enormous amount of material, informative and entertaining, that contributes in a rich and vital way to this country's intellectual, cultural, social and political life. There are grounds to suggest that this regard is widely shared in Australia. The ABC reaches more Australians every day now than it did at any time in its history, runs more radio stations and television stations than it ever has, and its online reach through abc.net.au, but also through platforms such as YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, perhaps not yet TikTok, uh, mm -hmm. is significant. abc.net.au is the most popular news and current affairs website in Australia and has been since just before the pandemic began. Um, it's ahead of any others. That's news.com.au, smh.com.au, Guardian Australia and so on. Nonetheless, such a world that is one without an ABC is arguably closer to hand than we might think because over the past decade, the ABC has existed at a buffeted intersection of criticism and that criticism has come from the commercial media, it's come from the political class, and it's come from ideologues, and it has been heated. Uh, what we'd like to show you today and through the book um, is how this has come about, because the hostility towards the ABC has been loud, relentless and grinding. And it's all been very similar in intent to build a picture of the ABC as a bloated and biased organisation that is running amok that is somehow un-Australian and that we would be better off without it. Darren Chester, who's a National Party MP and who was the Minister for Veterans Affairs under Tony Abbott and Malcolm uh, Turnbull when they were Prime Minister, told us, and I quote, many of my colleagues in the government, the coalition government, see the ABC as the enemy and think it should be treated as such. Now, the ABC is no stranger to criticism, and if you've actually looked at Ken Inglis's two volumes of history of the ABC, which go back to its formation in 1932, you'll find no shortage of controversies. But there has been a change in its tenor uh, in the last decade or so, and to understand that you need, we think, to understand three points. And the first is the change in the media landscape in this country, the whole media landscape. <laughs> If you go back to the 1990s, uh, when the internet was just arriving in this country in the early 1990s, the commercial media was in its pomp and the ABC was in its box. The media sector was print, radio and television, and it was highly profitable for all concerned. <coughs> Classified ads in the then Fairfax newspapers, for example, what you'd read to buy a car or find a job or look for a house were the rivers of gold, as Rupert Murdoch has called them, and advertisement space elsewhere was also high-priced on commercial television. The Sydney Morning Herald and The Age newspapers made about a million dollars in profit each week, primarily on the back of their weekend edition. Broadcasters like Alan Jones and John Laws were paid more than $3 million a year, and television stations made money hand over fist. There were also more than 3,000 magazines in this country, 
37 regional daily newspapers, 250 suburban newspapers. The Australian Women's Weekly sold more than 1 million copies per issue. The ABC, by contrast at that time, confined its operations to radio and television only, and its programs rated solidly but constantly behind commercial competitors. It had divisions for its music, its drama, its performing arts, including until 1996 symphony orchestras and in-house facilities that enabled it to create dramas, comedies, documentaries and more on TV and radio. It ran good quality news and current affairs programs and had a laudable record of investigative journalism, particularly on Four Corners, which began in the early 1960s, but generally at that time the ABC was not an agenda-setting news organisation. It followed the lead, or the news leads, I should say, of the commercial media providers. So at that time, the ABC was safe, was reliable, predictable, and a little fussy. Hence the nickname, Artie. The asteroid that altered this was the internet. And initially, in early 2000s, news media companies made their content available for free online in the belief that this would grow their audiences and thereby increase their attractiveness for advertisers. Now from today's perspective that looks inexplicably dumb, but it's worth understanding that the news business, especially newspapers, had always been a hybrid business, that is where profits from the cover price amount constituted only a proportion and probably a minority proportion of the total amount of revenue that the companies were bringing in from their newspapers and magazines, the rest of it, the bulk of it, came from advertising revenue. The internet, however, blew up that model, enabling creation of standalone advertising websites to meet customers' individual needs. By the mid-2000s, if you wanted to hunt for a house or a car or a job, you could do that for free. You didn't have to buy the newspaper each weekend and wade through hundreds, literally hundreds of pages of newsprint, they were 250 pages mm -hmm. at their biggest back then, I don't know if you remember it, but um, you could narrow your search, you could quickly turn up precise information and if you were selling meanwhile, you posted an ad to these <coughs> sites for next to nothing. The new online classified advertising sites could undercut the commercial media providers rates because they were in that business only and had none or few of the costs associated with <coughs> gathering and distributing news. Because to gather and distribute news, you need journalists and they're costly. They, it's one of the reasons in the last book that I worked on with a colleague at Melbourne Uni, Andrew Dodd, lots and lots of journalists were laid off uh, from about 2012, thousands of them. Uh, so that's another story, of course, and what effect that's had <coughs> on the media is another story, but it's related. So one half of the hybrid business model of commercial media providers collapsed and between 2012, advertising online went from 25% of the market to 53% of the market and it's continued to grow. And the bulk of the money that was earned from that advertising went to Google and Facebook. So media companies reacted to this, this cataclysmic change in various ways. One of them I've already alluded to is that they, they started laying off a lot of journalists and printers and advertising people and other people who worked for them. They sought to close the door on the barn, however, by putting their content behind paywalls, 
hoping that people would pay for the news that for the past decade had been available online for free. Didn't work. <laughs> Didn't work. As you can imagine, you, you, know, you give something away for free and then you start asking people to pay for it. It's, it's, uh, it's like putting your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. It kind of just doesn't really work very well. Also, they changed the kind of news that they were producing. Um, in a phrase, a lot more opinion and a lot more simple breaking news. So, Sean Kelly, who writes a column in The Age in the Sydney Morning Herald, he used to be an advisor to the uh, two former Labor Prime Ministers, Julia Gillard and um, Kevin Rudd. Um, he said this some years ago, about four or five years ago, news has always been a business, there's no point pretending otherwise. And what do you do if you need to create more content with less money? You create cheap content. And what are the cheapest types of content to produce? Opinions and breaking news. The beauty of opinions is that everyone's got one. Um, the beauty of breaking news is that it doesn't have to be that important or even difficult to get. It just has to have happened in the recent past. So suddenly you've got news and uh, sorry opinions and breaking news everywhere. Alongside policies around syndication, this is arguably why certain commentators have become more influential in the past decade and why arguments about the bias of media companies have become more pronounced. They've always been there, but there's no doubt that the kind of concerns about them have increased in recent years. There is an arguable self-interest when you're trying to get people to open their wallet to position your organisation as being on a certain side, appealing to a certain demographic, at the very least making it very clear where you stand on the issues of the day. Now, the scope and the ambit of these attempts to make a model are up for debate, but there can be no denying that the internet laid waste to the model existing until then. And this was before COVID, which saw the closure of more than 100 regional and local newspapers, building on the 100 that had been shut down between 2008 and 2018. And what this meant was that by 2021, there were 19 news deserts in Australia. That is, 19 local government areas that had no local media coverage. The problems that affected the commercial news media industry, however, did not affect the ABC in the same way because it's government funded and doesn't take advertising. It didn't have to contend with the same business model problems. Moreover, the ABC adapted to the internet's rise. It began putting material online in the 1990s, began reporting news online, created multimedia packages around newsworthy events. In 2010, it launched ABC 24, which provides around-the-clock news coverage. Radio National, well, people at Radio National embraced podcasting in 2008. The ABC launched iView, as I mentioned earlier, years ahead of the commercial networks. The ABC reshaped itself, shutting down its in-house production facilities in favour of contracting independent producers, corporatising its symphony orchestras and investing more resources in its news and current affairs division, particularly in investigative journalism. This change in the media landscape has had a few effects. First, commercial media providers trying to find a new business model have become increasingly agitated by the ABC. They've never been particularly happy about it, 
But these news providers have been saying, how are we supposed to get people to open their wallets and subscribe to our content when the ABC is giving away this news and content for free? It's not an unreasonable question. Second, the commercial media providers have become louder in their dislike of their obligations, particularly in rural areas. So the Nine Entertainment Company's chief executive, Hugh Marks, or he was the chief exec a few years ago, declared that his duty primarily was to his shareholders and that in the absence of the ability for his company to make significant profits from broadcasts in rural and regional Australia, he believed that his company shouldn't have to do so. The ABC can do that, he said. And you might argue that's fine, except that when 9 and 7 and 10 got their commercial television licences, they got them because that was um, there was a bidding process and they were provided with scarce spectrum, highly profitable. So they, that, that came with various obligations on them to produce local content, to produce a certain amount of news and so on. And he was the chief executive of Nine basically saying, we can't make money anymore, therefore just, you know, junkyard sale really, um, give it away to the ABC. So some of the issues that the commercial media has been grappling with have been improved. The federal government, that is the last federal government, created the News Media Bargaining Code under which the global tech giants Google and Facebook would be forced to negotiate with those news media companies for the use of their journalism. Uh, the deals that have been struck under this code have seen substantial funds go to news media companies, that is News Corporation owned by Rupert Murdoch and his family, Nine Entertainment Company, uh, Kerry Stokes' Seven West Media and so on somewhere in the vicinity of about $200 million a year at present. Some people even estimate up to 300, but let's say 200 million for three years. But the antagonism towards the ABC arising from a commercial self-interest has remained, however, home to much of that antagonism has in fact been News Corporation Australia, the dominant media company in this country. 3CR Community Radio giving voice to the community since 1976. And you're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're in the middle of listening to a speech given by uh, Matthew Rickardson. He is a co-author of Who Needs the ABC? Now, what he's just been talking about is a sort of summing up uh, uh, of uh, probably known facts. If you've been following the media, you will know a whole range of things that he's been talking about, but it's quite nice to get the actual figures. The next part is the political perspective on the ABC. Uh, uh, just a private word, uh, a personal word, uh, that uh, history of the ABC by King Ken Inglis, uh, it's the only book that I have underlined in pen. That is a confession. The most boring book I think I've ever read and I have read it (laughs) there you go this antagonism from the commercial media towards the ABC has joined with the change in the political landscape it's generally said that all governments dislike the ABC and it's possible to see why this might be so the ABC depends on the government for its funding but because of its charter obligations it is required to provide an independent broadcasting service that reports without fear or favour 
independent and impartially on the government of the day. The tension then between a government that might not like what the ABC report is reporting, yet funds the ABC to do that reporting, is unavoidable. The research that we did for the book suggests that this idea that all governments dislike the ABC is a half-truth. While all governments dislike the ABC, some dislike it more than others. And this becomes apparent when you compare the treatment of the ABC under governments over a sustained period. We, we, we decided to have a look back to when the ABC went from being a commission to a corporation back in 1983 when the uh, Hawke Labor government came to power. And if you look at the, um, at the funding under the four periods of government or main periods of government, the Hawke-Keating Labor government between 1983 and 1996, and then the Howard uh, coalition government between 1996 and 2007, followed by the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd Labor governments between 2007 and 2013, and then finally, most recently, the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison coalition governments, 2013 to this year. Um, that's almost 50-50, you know, it's about 19 and a half years for the coalition and about 19 years for Labor. Uh, so it's, it's actually kind of quite useful period to see. Um, what you see if you looked at about page, I think it's 186 in the book, is if you graph the funding for the ABC from those various governments, it goes um, up under Hawke Keating, down under Howard, up under Rudd Gillard Rudd, <laughs> and down under Abbott Turnbull Morrison. And it is literally that stark, it's like a cross-cut saw, okay? Um, and Patrick did a bit of extra work and look, went back to the McMahon period. The crosscut call saw, you know, pre, uh, is already there in place. So this is a kind of, it's something that, that most people don't want to talk about. The, the coalition governments don't want to talk about it because they don't want to look bad uh, in the eyes of people who support the ABC. The Labor governments, and even when they're in opposition, don't really want to talk about it because they don't want to look like they favour the ABC. Um, the ABC doesn't want to talk about it because it has to be like Caesar's wife on the question of its funder, the federal government. So they kind of, they run a line which is, um, we're just here doing our job, we will report without fear or favour. If that annoys the coalition government or Labor government, so be it, that's our job. And so they don't want to draw attention to this either. And most of the rest of the media doesn't want to draw attention to it either, because either because they're brawling with the ABC on ideological or commercial grounds, or, or in question mark, I don't know why, but it, the information that we gathered for the book and um, in this context, and I, should, I'm, I must acknowledge the work of a, another colleague, Michael Ward, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney and a former ABC executive himself, he did the deep dive into the ABC's budgets and I can give you 10 minutes on the ABC's budget but you probably will start groaning. Um, suffice to say it's labyrinthine, it's complicated. He sifted and sorted his way through it in order to come up with this chart. So I had some, I had a kind of inkling that this might be the case but I'd never seen it proven one way or the other. And if it wasn't the case, so be it, that's, you know, let the chips fill where they lie. When he, when he actually did the deep dive and found that out, he said he was quite surprised 
by how much of a crosscut saw it was. He, and he, this is someone who's both worked at the ABC and has been studying it for, you know, for his thesis. I'll finish with this aspect of it. The funding is one part of the picture. Um, the other is the way the governments talk about and treat the ABC. And again, there is enough of a record over that sort of period from 1983 to now to show a clear disparity. There's certainly been moments of tension and antipathy between the ABC and the Hawke and Keating governments, um, but they were generally driven by the ABC's reportage, um, the ABC broadcast a Four Corners programming election, sorry, alleging corruption in New South Wales under the then Premier Neville Rann, shortly after Labor came to office in 1983, and there were suggestions of retribution. Paul Keating, uh, made some pretty colourful remarks to the then ABC managing director David Hill um, and indeed when Four Corners reported on the activities of businessman and Hawke confidant Peter Abels, Hawke said publicly we don't fund the ABC to do stories on Peter Abels. <laughs> um, do you remember Peter Abels? Um, there were suggestions at one point that the ABC's independence should be quashed and there was a furore over the ABC's use of commentator Robert Springborg during the first Gulf War back in 1990-91. And yet, those moments, or these moments, appear not to have otherwise tarred the relationship. And the Hawke and Keating governments provide, not only presided over funding increases to the ABC, that talk of quashing the ABC's independence were themselves quashed by the Minister for Communications at the time, Michael Duffy and any suggestion of retribution was never actually dealt out, as far as we can tell. And one of our primary sources for that is Ken Inglis's history of the ABC. Michael Duffy actually said later that Hawke's antagonism towards the ABC, and I quote, always stops short of punishment. And there's no suggestion that Keating's threat to Hill ever transpired. Triennial funding, in fact, was introduced under the Hawke Keating government, and ABC board appointees included two former Liberal MPs in Neville Bonner and Ian McPhee. Under the Howard government, matters were different. John Howard himself was fond of certain aspects of the ABC. He was apt to appear in its commentator box at the cricket, mm -hmm. and he told ABC chair Donald MacDonald that he would never speak to him about the ABC, never raise it with him as an issue. Indeed, if MacDonald wished to speak to him about the ABC, then he should make an appointment through Howard's office to do it. However, Howard was also fond of one of his advisers' claims that the ABC was, quote, our enemy talking to our friends, and was critical of aspects of the ABC's coverage. His communications minister, Richard Alston, was hostile towards the broadcaster, presiding over a significant funding cut in the Howard government's first budget, after promising that there would be no cut, and introducing tied funding, that is money that has to be used for a specific purpose. The Howard government pointed a raft of avowed ABC critics to the ABC board, including Michael Kroger, Ron Brunton, <laughs> Keith Winshuttle and Janet Albertson. Alston also made continuous use of the complaints process to make complaints about ABC coverage. During the second Iraq war in 2003, he made 68 complaints about reportage on the ABC. The complaints were scrutinised and only two were found to have merit. He was unhappy and appealed to the, an independent board which found merit in 
17 of the 64, sorry, 68 complaints, but no more. Still unhappy, Alston took his complaints to the then Broadcasting Regulator, the Australian Broadcasting Authority, which upheld 21 of the 68. Despite the fact that less than a third of his complaints were upheld, Alston claimed to be vindicated. Under the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments, there appear to have been very few moments of tension or criticism. The Labor Party had, since 2002, made it policy to set up a formal independent process for appointments to the ABC board, which they enacted in 2011. And in addition to its budgeted funding increases, the government provided funding to switch from analogue to digital transmission, offered extra money for the creation of a dedicated children's channel, offered in 2013 dedicated funding for enhanced news gathering and investigative journalism, and saw the ABC expand its digital and online footprint. The murkiest episode during this period concerned the award of a contract for the Australia Network, which broadcast television into the Asia-Pacific region. But there were few to no moments of tension of the kind that we've already mentioned. But under the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments, the ABC has fared much worse. Tony Abbott, um, reprising Richard Alston, promised the night before the 2013 election there would be no cuts to the ABC and broke that promise famously in his first budget. Uh, the the $196 million contract to fund the Australian network was cancelled and cuts were successfully delivered to the ABC's budget in 2014, 15 and 16. Indexation of ABC funding was paused, cutting, cutting its funding. The enhanced news gathering program was renewed but also cut by a third. And the ABC's allegiances were criticised. Um, Abbott said in 2014, I think it dismays Australians when the national broadcaster appears to take everyone's side but our own. Whose side are you on? he asked in 2015. Matters hardly altered under Malcolm Turnbull, the darling of the Q&A set at that time, as you may remember. The formal process for appointments to the ABC board was flouted, even disregarded, and complaints about the work of journalists Emma Alberici and Andrew Proben ran through official channels as well as unofficial private remonstrations and pressure. This became central to the 2018 fracas that saw the managing director, Michelle Guthrie, sacked by the ABC board, and the chairman, Justin Milne, depart a few days later in what is still one of the most, if not the most, tumultuous weeks in the ABC's history. With claims that Milne had urged Guthrie to sack Alberici and Proben in response to the government's complaints. Um, more recently, under Scott Morrison, the appointments process continued to be flouted. Um, the current chair, Ida Buttrose, was actually appointed without any formal process. Funding to continued to decline and ministers dissembled about whether funding was rising or falling. Moreover, under Morrison, the ABC became an even more frequent target of criticism, particularly over ABC coverage and reportage. The relationship became extremely fraught and there were announcements of Senate inquiries and hearings into the ABC and its duties and public lectures from the, from the Prime Minister then about what was appropriate or not. And that brings us to the election in May, um, which obviously saw a change of government, and I'm sure that a lot of people around the country breathed a sigh of relief and thought, well, that must mean everything's going to be hunky-dory now for the ABC. And I, at one level, that 
there's some truth in that, as in immediately the, the incoming Labor government uh, promised to meet one of the ABC's um, requests, which was to change the period of funding from three years to five years. And the reason for that is that a three-year funding period, triennial funding as it's called, kind of falls within the electoral cycle and is so prey to the electoral cycle, five years takes you outside of that and hopefully depoliticises it a bit. They've also promised, the new communications minister Michelle Rowland has promised to um, make sure that the appointments process for board directors is adhered to rather than flouted. Uh, beyond that, not much yet. Now, obviously, the government has a few things on its mind right now. I, you'd have to acknowledge that. Um, but there are, I think the main message before I sit down and, and take questions is um, if we think that the ABC's uh, everything's fine now, I think that would be mistaken. And I think if we only think about it come election day, then that's a mistake too, because there's there's things to do with the way in which the ABC is run and its processes which do need improvement. I mean, for example, um, this hasn't been much written about, but uh, if you think that cuts, sustained cuts over the best part of a decade have not had any impact on the ABC's performance, I think you'd be mistaken. shout out to 3CR. Two groups of 3CR here. We've got Wednesday Brickie, we've got Radioactive and like for the heart and soul of documenting stuff that goes on in this city of five million people, bloody magnificent institution as well as Revolutionary Radio. And you're with Annie on this Revolutionary Radio 3CR on breakfast, Saturday breakfast. And uh, we have just been listening to some elements around the survival of the ABC, a uh, the third um, arm of media in Australia. Of course, community radio is one of those arms of a radio, of uh, media in Australia, but we have got a very, very, very uh, bleak outlook when it comes to the uh, bully of uh, the media uh, world, which is the commercial world. The, one of the things that should uh, really uh, cause alarm is one of the statements in that conversation by uh, uh, Matthew Rickardson, a uh, was that there are 19 desert media deserts in uh, Australia where there is no media coverage uh, or no local media, which of course means that whatever the local governments are doing isn't being inspected. That's actually something that people should be concerned about. But anyway, moving right along, uh, we're going to go to uh, an interview I did with uh, Carl Fitzgerald. Carl used to do uh, a, an important uh, re renegade economist on 3CR. He has he was formerly with Prosper Australia, 
and has now moved on to uh, uh, and is uh, has formed a uh, NGO, a new NGO called um, Grounded, which is uh, focusing on uh, a new way of trying to get people into uh, houses, you know, the whole human right around uh, having shelter. Uh, uh, Prosper Australia was uh, very focused on um, the issue of land ownership and uh, availability for the uh, general public rather than in the monopolistic hands of developers and the few. Anyway, uh, the last report that Carl did for uh, Prosper Australia is now up online. You can go to... Uh, Prosper Australia, and you can see their groundbreaking series of reports. Uh, and this particular one has taken over a decade to write. Uh, and it focuses on the, and sort of dispels uh, this lie that significant land supply uh, is is the uh, reason for uh, l- runaway land prices, and that developers are uh, uh, need uh, increased rezoning and access to a whole lot of land to be able to f- fix the problem of people not having uh, houses to buy. Right? We're talking about uh, uh, the commercial land. Uh, and um, housing market here rather than the public housing market. And uh, this is, uh, it's commonly believed, uh, it was just generally believed that uh, the limiting factor are planning regulations. You hear it all the time. It's planning regulations that are causing the bottleneck, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this particular report um, actually... uh, blows this out of the water. But I'll let Carl explain it to you because it's actually really significant and it also really significantly ties into the privatisation of data which makes it impossible or very nearly impossible to apply uh, clear thinking uh, that actually allows for progressive outcomes. You were looking into uh, issues around um, why public policy into uh, the housing shortage is actually misfocused. Can you talk a little bit about what you're actually looking into in this report? Yes, thanks, Annie, and hello to all listeners on the beloved 3CR airwaves. Um, Yeah, the report was called Staged Releases, Peering behind the land supply curtain. And, of course, uh, when it comes to that classic evolution of colonialists to football players to property developers, um, it's uh, to MPs, I should say, as well, uh, that sort of cohort um, works together and uh, essentially government rezones all this land, but uh, it's all care and no responsibility. No one... They don't look at what developers do once they've got the rezoning. They just trust in the market and believe that by 
uh, sprawling as far as we have, uh, that uh, that's the best thing they can do and the competition will naturally evolve. Uh, but as um, listeners may remember from my Renegade Economist radio show, uh, when um, power is given to those who have a monopoly control of uh, a resource such as land, uh, it's very easy to use that power to extort higher and higher prices. So uh, this is uh, the first uh, major report to look behind this land supply curtain and see what developers actually do once they have uh, everything they ever wanted. It's funny, isn't it? Because uh, the argument has always been, and it seems like a naturally occurring argument, that the reason for why there is a housing unaffordability uh, problem is the one that was put forward, which is not enough land and the uh, government um, uh, breaks on um, uh, that land being delivered, you know, like land taxes and all those kind of things, that kind of red tape. But you've uh, actually looked into this and you've found that actually because you've got private development, you know, companies, developers with stock uh, shareholders and all that sort of stuff, that actually their focus isn't actually on housing affordability and you'd never expect it to be. Yes, that's right. You know, you know developers always blame red and green tape, but uh, through this report we came to realise that there was another sort of tape. It was actually gold tape that developers hold once they get the rezoning to drip-feed the land out uh, according to the state of the market. So uh, we looked at nine master-planned communities uh, between Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria and uh, they controlled 110,000 housing opportunities and over an average nine and a half years, only 24% of those lots were sold to the market. So uh, what we found... uh, behind the land supply curtain was that when um, times were buoyant and the market was running hot, of course the developers could find the builders, they could uh, do all the paperwork, they could, um, you know, jump any hurdle to sell, uh, you know, often um, 50%, uh, 80%, 90% more supply than what they could when uh, there were tough times in the market. And so uh, here we are in in mid-2020, and um, I'd imagine with interest rates rising, uh, there would uh, be very little supply on the market as developers work feverishly to choke uh, land prices from, from falling and actually delivering on, on this uh, affordability promise that uh, lobbyists have, uh, have called for for so long uh, that, you know, give us all the supply and... Uh, that will trickle down to home buyers, and um, as we know from the the 90s, uh, trickle down economics never worked. Same thing here. Yeah, it's fantastic, uh, sleight of hand, uh, and obviously it's not just developers; it's the financiers that are behind it. As you point out in this development, in this report, that holding on to land can actually give them a return. Yes. And uh, that's something um, uh, Dr. Cameron Murray, uh, one of our um, researchers, uh, has really pushed and um, 
and helped us all understand that there's uh, something called the option value of, say, those 110,000 lots. If they brought them all on the market, we know prices would drop. But from a shareholder perspective, they know that if they engage in patient capital and hold that land and uh, slowly release it, um, over time, the value of those 110,000 lots is probably yeah, five, ten times more um, if, if they uh, drip-feed it over 20 to 30 years rather than uh, 10 to 15 years. There was a fasc- fascinating um, uh, case study in near Ipswich where they even obtained a special piece of legislation that gave them complete control and in the end it didn't matter if it was if land prices were going up or down the cost of anything that they sold they were eventually gleaning something like 3 303% above uh in profits uh, in the price mm. yeah that's uh Springfield, which is Australia's largest master plan community with some 43,000 lots in development. And after 19 years, uh, that only sold 23% of their site. And, of course, uh, government hasn't asked any questions. That over time, uh, the land prices in Springfield, despite all of that supply, had still managed to increase by 8.1% a year um, above inflation. So, uh, you know, a really poor return on public policy. And, you know, our, this report, we kind of walked a fine line between demonising developers and really holding a mirror up to government and saying, look, uh, you guys have fallen for this hook, line and sinker. How on earth could you think that uh, developers are going to keep building enough houses to undercut their own product? Yeah, well, it's it interesting. It doesn't make sense, does it? No, no, it doesn't make sense. And the other thing that's fascinating is that your work has taken, this report's taken a, about a decade to actually shape up. And part of it, as you've said, is because of the prohibitive nature, the cost of data uh, and the privatisation of property data. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's cost us thousands to access this data. And, you know, go back uh, a decade ago with geospatial analysis coming through, we were really excited about the potential of it uh, to be able to do an animation showing how various elements of community development affected property prices and who won and who lost. Well, of course, since then, um, a lot of uh, our property data has been sold off to uh, a Californian multinational called CoreLogic, who, uh, interestingly, have also um, moved to the front of the queue when it comes to climate emergency data and uh, oh flood, flood data. And it kind of feels like uh, these big boys are using massive algorithms, plugging in all the demographics, and they're just setting themselves up for where we're all going to be forced to move in another 15, 20-odd years, uh, you know, with uh, Lismore, perhaps, uh, the canary in the coal mine. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the data um, is very expensive, but if um, you uh, get to read the stage releases report, have a look at figure one, because this is the, the key graph that uh, we're trying to get Andrew Lee, 
federal Labor to, uh, to get us into the ACCC because uh, remember Richard Pratt, uh, the, the, the Vizzy cardboard box king who got done for meeting in an apartment, um, meeting in a, a hotel in Carlton with... Uh, uh, I think the Amcor executives, and they faced, uh, I think, $20 million in cartel. And Yeah, this sort of cartel thing. And, and that was when they actually had to have meetings. But now we've got um, algorithms where they all, all look at uh, uh, auction clearance rates, days on market, uh, credit availability, land supply in the region. And it's probably 12, 15 different metrics there. And... Uh, in mid-2017, sort of March, April 2017, the auction clearance rate started to soften. And by July, that had continued. Um, but uh, when we looked at what happened to um, housing sales, uh, basically, it had halved within um, those few months. And... Uh, it was a strong indication. We can't prove it, but it was an indicator that perhaps developers had seen the market was softening and they need to stay ahead of the market, so they're going to pull the supply that's available um, available to purchase from the market so that prices will keep heading northwards. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we look at Victoria, uh, because people are constantly wanting to know why is it, why is it that uh, there's constant discussion about uh, building house builds and all that sort of stuff, why is it impossible for uh, um, there to be any, um, you know, uh, you know, reform, you know, stuff happening for people who are even in the private housing market. We're not even talking about public housing issues here. We're talking about people who are trying to buy their first home, as it were. So in 2010, you po- uh, point out that the urban growth boundary um, and the precinct structure plan in a, in Victoria was expecting to have 110,000 residential lots. Like, that was the big announcement. And despite this, residential land prices increased by an inflation-adjusted 63.02% between 2012 and uh, 21. So uh, what it means for people who are trying to buy into the housing market is that they're paying, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars more because of the price of the land. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, the ABC quantified that uh, we've probably lost half of our peri-urban food bowl in this uh, drive to give developers everything they want. And there's there's the the response of being given a 63.4% increase in land prices. So... uh, yeah, I'm really hoping I get a response from the Housing Minister, Danny Pearson. Um, you know, we, we've got to get some action on this. Uh, I feel like my uh, meeting invitation is dying in his inbox, but uh, the <laughs> Treasurer's Office has shown some interest in it, so that's good. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's probably time we spoke to the Liberal Party as well and see if they might take any meaningful action on this. Well, that would be an interesting... Uh, day in hell, I'd say. Um, <laughs> considering if you think about the fisherman's Ben debacle. But anyway, um, yeah, well, there you go. But uh, this is, you, you've you actually moved towards uh, 
say, I mean, these staged release, this uh, sort of unholy alliance between government and private uh, developers, uh, you know, because they're all in love with capitalism, da-da-da-da-da-da, um, they think it's the answer, except, of course, it doesn't actually return uh, the favour to the public interest. But you've gone to something else. You've, you've uh, decided to create... Um, uh, an NGO called Grounded, and you're uh, supporting the community land trust model. Can you explain that? Yes, certainly. You know, the for-profit model, this report sort of shoots holes in it, and I got word from a, a Queensland developer that the government up there has read this report and found that the development industry has a big credibility issue coming up because uh, they've just not given us the returns they promised. Um, and so, yeah, what's happening, particularly in the UK, US, is a community-led housing movement where um, this, uh, you know, you've heard of tiny homes, you've heard of co-housing. People who used to listen to my show would have heard me rabbit on about community land trust, but we don't actually have one happening in Australia yet. And it's where the rising value of the land is kept within the community rather than allowed to leak to the previous owner or to the banks. So uh, basically that rising land value can um, pay off the debts within about a decade and then um, you've got uh, a reasonable income stream coming through to invest in um, social ventures that your community may prioritise. And, uh, yeah, the land trust model sees the trust own the land but the resident um, uh, own the building. So uh, that saves you around about 60 or 70% um, in terms of your mortgage interest and, and the amount of money you need to borrow. So, um, oh, what, what are you saying, that you're isolating the uh, cost of the land from the building that someone's living in? Yes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And uh, in America, during the global financial crisis, uh, the foreclosure rates were 94% lower than in the wider market because uh, community works together. You get a financial advisor in and um, he works with everyone, makes sure um, everyone's sort of got a good plan and, um, you know, you do all the things that we should be doing in a country uh, where, uh, you know, we've had this TV show called Neighbours for so long um, until recently. Uh, you know, we're meant to be good at engaging with our community, but... Um, you know, it's, it takes a special bond to make those connections and we'd like to think that those who are looking for a sort of uh, uh, earth-based uh, living system um, where we respect our neighbours and our community and want to do good things for each other, that this is a much better model to go with. Uh, does, uh, does that require legislation? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that really did my head in was... Um, uh, it was about my last radio show. We finally got this rezoning windfall gains tax legislation through in Victoria last November. But tacked onto the back of the bill was the build to rent legislation, which Wall Street had rushed through in the last 18 months. And this was to prioritise and, and lavish them with all sorts of tax handouts so that uh, we could rent from Wall Street. And... Um, yeah, when I saw that, I was like, my God, here I am up on land in central Victoria near uh, Clinton, Dalesford sort of region, and um, 
I've got 27 acres trying to do good things, but I'm having to piece together the Retirement Villages Act with the Caravan Park Act. Uh, we need some dedicated legislation so, you know, tiny homes can actually park somewhere. The co-housing um, is seen as a, a respectable form of living and not something that's confusing for banks. And for community land trusts, it's uh, all that and more. Um, we really need to... Uh, provide some 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 uh, socially beneficial uh, housing models to the market because there's more than enough of us who recognise that we shouldn't be making huge profits out of this human right of somewhere to live. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A week's solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when we must offend former Big Supremo and Minister for Just Everything Else, Scuttle Them More Lash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, from all these attacks on his renowned, his famous integrity, because how could he tell the other ministers, let alone we the people, when he couldn't even recall being sworn into those portfolios? Understandable when there were so many swearing ints. And okay, okay, some people question his honesty just because next day he explained why he did what he couldn't remember he did. But goodness me, only because he forgot what he said the previous day. People can be so cruel, can't they? Demanding he resign would, of course, be a severe punishment as he would disappear into the political abyss, clutching a lifetime of his massive parliamentary pension, a severe punishment. While his integrity is being a touch more than questioned, at least no one's challenging his reputation, which has been confirmed, and so we must for once disagree with the true blue Aussie capitalist review's arch-conservative political editor's headline yesterday, Secret Ministerial Deals Tarnish More Lash Sun's Legacy. Of course not, they, they reinforce it, bringing us to the righteous Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, suddenly critical of poor Scummo, perhaps conveniently forgetting that just a couple of months ago it was editorialising to us that we must re-elect the Minister for Just Everything as the Minister for Just Everything, which would have solved the problem because then we would never have known he was the Minister for Just Everything, with Cabinet meeting at night with the lights out so Scummo could keep them in the dark as well. But now the man they backed copying headlines like my party and I'll lie if I want to maintaining that musical theme what a difference a day or a few weeks of days make meanwhile the socialist government elected despite Lord Rupert knowing what a disaster that will be is refusing to criticize her most gracious majesty's representative when you see him you see her Former number one trained killer David Hurley the blame. General Hurley the blame who nonetheless picks up the week that was the buck stops here award for hurling the blame. Blaming Paul loves the dear baby Jesus would never tell a lie scummo. But we would expect nothing less than loyalty from the number one trained killer whose big role is sending the cannon fodder off to kill and be killed. And good to see the socialist lot who in a short time have shown they just love a bit of trained killing and trained killer merchandise for refusing to criticise a big trained killer, an honourable man. Interesting that, a hitman paid to kill as a despised criminal, a volunteer in uniform paid to kill or order inferiors to kill is honourable. 
While on train killers, notice the train killing is glorious memorial in Canberra this week was tracking down Indigenous volunteers who went to Vietnam. Now, it's not my role to tell them, but I can't comprehend why any first Trublawasi person would ever volunteer to defend this country and what it's done to them. But as I say, it's not my place to advise. But the train killing is glorious memorial bloke said these indigenous people had volunteered to defend Trublawasi. And could someone explain to us which bit of invading, slaughtering and destroying in Vietnam at the behest of a US, of the UN, of the US of the world, which didn't like what the Vietnamese people wanted for themselves, was defending True Blue Aussie. But, but back to the point. Like Scummo, I feel my incredible talents are being underutilised and thus I plan to declare myself presenter of another 23 programs on 3CR. And the clever bit is, the presenters I'll be replacing will have no idea what I've taken over their programs. Ingenious, eh? (laughs) To make my takeovers official, I'll get the station manager to endorse my actions and pledge her to secrecy as well. But Scummo's multi-talented roles are nothing compared to the week that was sport this week. With the announcement that Alistair Clarkson will coach at least eight AFL teams next season. The AFL admits this will create a few fixture problems, but none it believes it can't sort out. On a perfect weekend, they could all be playing each other, so Alistair will only have to coach at four games. The poor old coaches, well, not so poor, particularly Alistair with his eight salaries next season, the panting, breathless footy journos who analyse it and coaches like it's of world-shattering importance, seem to overlook that even if they won a premiership in order on average, a team would win one premiership every 18 years. And the AFL wants to add more teams to make more money, so supporters are very patient. The then Parallel Minister for Fossils and Pollution, Keith Pitpony, was distressed that his approval for gas expansion off Newcastle was rejected by the then Parallel Minister for Fossils and Pollution, Scummo. But Scummo explained this week he had rejected the proposal in the national interest. But Scummo, you waved a big lump of coal around in Parliament, told us not to be afraid of it. You you championed a gas-led recovery. A gas-led recovery was in the national interest, you said. And had I still been minister for just everything, that would still be the case. But this particular gas-led recovery was the wrong-coloured gas-led recovery to be in the national interest. Wrong colour? Certainly, it had a distinct teal glow to it. Uh, So it was the caring business class party in your own personal interest rather than the national interest. Same thing. Oh, and Scummo's successor, Constable Peter Duffer's in-depth comment, it's time to take, you know, like, like, move on. The new government also supports more gas and coal, but also aims to reduce destroying the planet by 43% within eight years, making the most complicated circus juggling act look simple. Although one ball circling through the air reads, we will pay the big polluters who are destroying the planet lots of public money to destroy the planet 43% less. Because it's not like the big polluters have made fortunes out of big polluting, causing the problem for which they're receiving heaps of corporate welfare. Like, say, Santosas, the public purse, which has just, quote, 
stared down fossil fuel activists and pressed the button on a new $3.7 billion oil project in Alaska, for which the Trubalawazi taxpayers will hand it lots of money, while that repository of government largesse, the airline which used to be our airline, will be one of the biggest beneficiaries of even more government largesse showing that the government is spot on and it's more gas, more coal, pay the polluters target. And if that hasn't cheered us up enough, listener, a Bloomberg report out of London told us it's never been a better time to make money by digging up coal. Why, lucky, lucky, Glenn don't care, coal first half earnings surged 900%, real figure, to $12.5 billion. Evil China is boosting coal production by 300 million tonnes and good India is developing lots of new mines. Saudi Aramco Pollution Co. announced a 90% increase in oil earnings. The massive profits are yielding big paydays for investors, Bloomberg boasted. All the more reason why the big polluters need lots of taxpayer money if they are forced to stop doing what they do. Well, not do it quite as much. And yet the same report reckoned all this made the Paris targets almost impossible. What it shows is obvious. Irresponsible governments are not providing nearly enough corporate welfare for the planet's responsible huge polluters. Oh, and if all that hasn't cheered us up enough, listener, over in the US of, they've formed a clean hydrogen future coalition. Doesn't that sound promising? Well, it would if Shell, BP and Chevron weren't on the board and advocating that clean hydrogen somehow means coal and gas hydrogen. And if that isn't enough to cheer us up, Cornell Professor Robert Howarth showed this would be even more polluting and expensive than just using gas outright. Oh, but that suggests highly respectable great transnational corporations like Shell, BP and Chevron would resort to greenwashing. Shame, Cornell Professor, shame. And back here, a not-so-evil union, the AWU, has passed a resolution opposing all hydrogen being just green. We prioritise the scaling up of hydrogen irrespective of type to maximise the opportunity for the hydrogen exporting economy. We can't let green activists control the national conversation. It displayed its concern for the planet. Oh, silly me. All of the above share our concern for the planet. But, despite all these massive, filthy, obscene stuff the planet profits, sadly the time is still not right for lazy, avaricious workers to get a pay rise. And even more sadly, the real evil unions are no less evil, forcing that determinant of all that is good in this country, our old maintenance will cost the workers of the Trublowazi Industry Profits Group to attack a thoughtless anti-Trublowazi proposal by the ACTU that wages should be lifted in return for increasing the permanent migration intake. With his usual impeccable logic and concern for all of us, Innes said this was impractical and would wreck the skilled visa system. It could well mean we have to pay them. He was distraught, showing how cruel the evil unions can be. And the totally neutral only cares for all of us, Trublowazi Chamber of Commerce and Industry Profits, backed Innes' wise words. The wage increase will kill True Blue Aussie's migration program overnight. Supremo Andrew McKillar wages revealed the depth of the problem. 
It exposes the divisive class paranoia of the ACTU that it would think that caring employers would for one second even consider exploiting migrant workers. Let's hope the evil unions show a bit more give and take with the caring employers' sensible proposals at the Job Summit Accord Mark II. There's already been a clash between that Sally McManus of the ACTU and the highly responsible Caring for All of Us Supremo of the Productivity Commission, Michael Bring on Profits. Now of those two, who do we trust? The non-partisan Productivity Commission, of course. See, she says wages are not keeping up with productivity, while he says low wages are because of a lack of productivity. And she used a comparison of productivity against the wage price index, and he said, and this is where he proved his argument, the comparison does not tell the full story. Case closed. That didn't need an explanation. Hasn't that put the evil unions in their place? Speaking of place, the Coles to Newcastle Award of the Week to Salt, Sugar and Fat franchise Domin on the Nose, which last week closed its so-called pizza franchises in Italy. Italy! Can't understand why the Italians would reject Domino on the Nose and keep eating the real thing. What were they thinking in the first place? Finally, the... Hang on, I've been handed a note. Oh, it's from the station manager, obviously endorsing my clever idea. Let's see. Oh, no, this is ridiculous. No way, you idiot. You've got to be joking. What? There's got to be a mistake. Our listener knows there's never any joking on this segment. Look, I think I'll show her. I'll take her job, but I just won't bother to tell her. Good morning. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Saturday's 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got David Kelly in the studio who's going to explain a little bit about this important event that's on next Friday. G'day, David. Hey, Annie. How you going? I'm all right. A bit of a frog in my throat. (laughs) It was pouring before. Yeah, I know. (laughs) it, it's it's mayhem on the streets at the minute. It's just rain everywhere. <laughs> so this is an important um, event uh, that's been auspiced by RMIT um, Urban Center for Urban Research. Research. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess it's it's not an academic event. That's the first thing to say. So what we've been able to do is pretty much expropriate the resources of the university in order to put on an activist event. 
Um, so it's activist-led, it's peer-led. Um, there's, I think, only maybe two activists involved in the whole thing and um, who will be speaking on the day amongst uh, more than a dozen other speakers. So it's really not an, activist, um, an academic event. But the RMIT um, Capital Theatre has allowed us to use that theatre, which is an amazing theatre, and we've been able to get a little bit of funding to help support some people to participate in the forum, um, to distribute materials, and to make donations to a lot of the campaign groups that are involved. So that's where the bulk of the actual funding support is going to go to supporting people like Homes Not Prisons, Renters and Housing Union, um, and, and others. Yeah, so. yeah. The um, the issue of uh, having a roof over your head is a complicated thing, although it's a human right. Mm. Now, um Often it's discussed, I mean, I've been to a lot of different kind of forums led by completely different types of people. Uh, when it comes to government, they have a particular focus. They they put it into particular uh, almost um, spreadsheets, mm-hmm. you know, and how it works and all the rest of it. Uh, but, of course, the lived experience of homelessness and the reason for why people uh, don't have places to go to be safe in are, are various, isn't it? And mm. trying to get those voices uh, heard is really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times, yeah, that lived experience doesn't make it into the policy. Um, but... There's also a tendency for policymakers to make these sorts of issues really complicated. And, you know, all this complex financial arrangements and these sorts of things that mean that we can't just provide direct provision of public housing, that we can't just provide housing to people who lose sleeping rough on the street. The answer is that they can. They actually spend all that money already. So there's no more money needed. But it's not... There's also this narrative that you know, homelessness is complex. It is. People have, you know, a lot of different journeys on their way to sleeping rough, and it's and some of them are really unpleasant. But the solution is actually quite simple. It's housing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's, I think, a, a lot of this um, program that we put together for the forum is to demystify a lot of that stuff and say, look, like, no, it's it's really it's really quite simple. And homeless people have called for it themselves. And you know, housing is what's needed, supports what's needed. And First Nations groups have called for it themselves and saying that you know, all of this is tied to land rights, all of this is tied to sovereignty and dispossession. So we're really trying to make those clear lines of connection between elemental things that underpin housing justice that are lost in policy speak. And the so policy you're talking about ideological difference, and uh, mm. really, aren't you? And so, for example, the uh, business about homes, not uh, prisons, is a really important mm. uh, element to this. I mean, huge amounts of money is going into build, uh, builds of uh, prisons yeah. that hold a thousand prisoners. Yeah. I mean, people should act. I mean, when I heard that number, a thousand prisoners, people should be shocked. Yeah, yeah, and. I, I'm not under. I'm not really sure why it's there's not more outrage around the growth of prisons in Victoria, especially, um, or the presence of prisons at all, for that matter. Um, well, when we talk about prisons in terms of housing, I think we really need to, when we're trying to make demands to policymakers, we need to be clear that 
you were funding housing here. You're just for funding carceral housing. That's right. Um, and it costs a lot of money. And if you just had the provision of public housing in the first place, place that yeah. maybe these things wouldn't exist for you to then come in, you know, with your heavy-handed paternalism, actually, then just lock people up. But you know, yeah, the, the idea that it's um, it, it's about the way you think, isn't it? It's yeah. about the way you think. Mm. Uh, the idea that a person. Uh, and bringing it, stripping it right back to basic needs, really, isn't it? Mm. Uh, what are basic needs? If a person, uh, and also self-determination. And yeah. this, of course, is, these are highly political situa- uh, uh, issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I think it is how you think. And one thing that we're trying to get audience members to do. So in the audience, we hope that we find majority of the housing activists that are here in NARM. Mm. Um, and we want them to listen for a day instead of the, it won't be a direct dialogue with speakers who are on the panels like people like Lydia Thorpe and, and that they're not we don't want the question of sovereignty and land back to be a Q&A. Um, so what we want them to do is to change how they think about housing justice and say housing justice is all these other things all as these well. other things as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. And really to to get that in their head so that when we say, when we're arguing against the demolition of public housing in Victoria and Melbourne, we're not saying the answer is more public housing and, and the appropriation of um, more Indigenous land and, and that sort of thing. We're, say, we're saying we want to walk and chew gum at the same time and say we, we can have more housing justice and be better aligned and better in better relation to indigenous sovereignty. Yeah, yeah, okay. And also the paradigm of um uh, of policy thinking things out in a particular way. Like I I just did an interview with uh, Carl Fitzgerald about um the whole idea of giving a whole lot of rezoning a whole lot of land giving it to private developers and then all of a sudden we're going to have uh, all these plots of land for people to have their first home on, right? Yeah. And it hasn't happened. No. It doesn't work. No. <laughs> yeah. There's this um, constant narrative coming out of the property industry that supply, that's the reason why we have a housing shortage. Um, we don't have a housing a, a, shortage. A, a, and, and government uh, policy, you know, like uh, restrictions. Yeah, yeah. So all we need to do is change the, the you know, the property regime and the, the zoning and planning and all that. And all of a sudden we'll have this massive growth in affordable housing. That's never been the case. Um, when When they come in and say, oh, we just need to knock down this public housing estate and then build more private and affordable housing and it would all be great. It's like, it would well, be great. But that apparently is untrue. We have more vacant homes in this country, in this city, than we actually have people who need them. Mm. So we don't have a supply issue. We have a distribution issue. Mm. Um, so whenever we hear about more housing or more land being stolen and, and, and the loot distributed and, and you know making its way, way around the property ecology, um, it's all... A myth. It's a myth, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it's the capitalist myth. Mm. Yeah, basically. But also, it ties. It's this business about. It's a, a much more complex historical thing, isn't it? About land ownership, or I mean, you know, land that actually is not mm. 
this is why treaty, this is why in this issue of Indigenous um, sovereignty is so important because English law is based on land ownership and that is one of the reasons for why the Mabo issue was a king hit against mm. this established order. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, um, and... Yeah, I mean it's very. Com- I mean, it's so complex. It, it's, it's complicated because it's a weird idea that over yeah. generations, thousands of years, particular groups of people have been stealing common property. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm Irish, and we have a very long history of anti-landlordism, um, and there's the same things that happen in other colonial contexts happen in this colonial context. And it is all about the land. It is all about bringing in new title over that land in order to then legitimise its theft. Um, it happens. It even happened in you know in Britain before, like with the enclosure of the commons and those sorts of things. And there were activists in those days yeah. who actually fought against it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and the rewriting of history. This is why it's so important, this sort of event that you've got. It's because it's ha- the lens that you actually put onto these issues. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and we can see that the experience of dispossession and displacement is always unique, but it has correlates around the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we have panellists from Palestine who are going to talk about those sorts of dynamics and those sorts of um, modes of dispossession. Um, and we're going to understand that there's there's a much deeper problem here in the housing question that we need to explore. And I think, you know, for a number of centuries, people have been saying that the housing question is a social question. Um, like, if you figure out the housing question, you will have a pretty big reorientation of relations within society that could be more equitable. So that's why kind of we're really focusing in on the housing question, but saying it connects to all of these things and sovereignty is the underlying basis for any questions of housing justice in this country. Ah, oh, fantastic. Perfect time to finish. Tell people how to get involved in this. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a week away. Um, we still have tickets left. It's uh, if you go to curcur.org.au forward slash events forward slash dwelling justice, you will find an event page, um, which then has a link to an event bright page where you can get your tickets. Um, I have, will put this link on the uh, podcast. Yeah, great. Um, so we have we have sold just over four hundred, and we have a couple of hundred tickets left. So please, if this sounds like it's for you, please come. It is an in-person event, but if you can't make it on the day, we will have a live stream and a video posted afterwards. Uh, also, it's at the Capitol. It's in the middle of uh, the city. Yep. And, and if you've never been to the Capitol, it is the most fantastic building. The interior was uh, designed by... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it was designed by uh, a, 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 a terrible thing to say, Burley Griffin's wife. Right. But... Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name, which of course is the tragedy of history. Yeah. But it's the uh, it's a fantastic 1930s interior that's been brought back to life. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I'm super excited about the venue, especially. <laughs> <laughs> and there will be two film screenings as well. So, like, you know, we're going to dim the lights, and it's going to be really nice yeah. um, filming. Love- Lovely, 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 lovely. Thanks for coming in no and uh, telling people all about it. I'll just play the uh, the card again so that you get the full intention of the event. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and uh, we'll go out with a nice little bit from Mia Dyson. So let's hear... Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research a 3CR supporter. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.